Greetings and welcome to this episode of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, here at Harbor City Capital. Have a great guest, and uh, I, I was reading over your bio, Larry. I'm excited about diving into your background and some of the things that you're working on right now. But we have Larry Namer with us. He is the founder of E-Entertainment Group. A lot of people will be obviously familiar with that in the consumer market. He also is the COO of Fanvestor, which I am excited to learn more about. I just took a little bit of a peek at the business model, but really excited to learn about that, as well as president of Mayton. And we'll talk about all the deals you've got on the table. So I was looking at your bio, and it was one of the things I pointed out to Daniel Pinarenda, our producer for this show, who's also in our business development group at Harbor City. And I said, it looks like you've done a lot with taking existing assets, uh, entertainment assets from the U.S., repurposing and repositioning them overseas, which is very interesting from a deal-making perspective. So I want to get into that a little bit today and talk about that. Also, I want to talk a little bit about the Harlem Globetrotters, as I hear that in the sound of their music in the back of my mind, that you took them over into Russia, I believe, for the first time in 50 years. Um, and so we're going to talk about a lot of exciting things, but maybe you could back up just a little bit. You created E-Entertainment Group uh, with a partner, I believe, and a fairly modest amount of capital, and the company is now valued. I know y'all exited, but the company is now valued greatly and obviously has impacted a lot of lives. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that start and the early days of what y'all did there? And then let's bring it forward to today. Sure. Um, myself and a friend of mine named Alan Marufka. Alan's a friend from New Jersey that uh, was actually in the real estate business, but uh, one of the real estate deals we got involved and was taking over a small little studio here in LA and you know when, when you're New York kids and you come out to LA you get the bug and you want to be in the entertainment business like everybody else so I had uh, been in the cable business since high school but more on the, um, the the technical and the operations end I actually started as a uh, an underground splicer in Manhattan uh, when I first got out of school, because I couldn't find a real job. Um, and then I kind of grew with it. But uh, well, when I came out to California, I came out to be the vice president, general manager of a company called Valley Cable, which was the first 61 channel two way cable system ever built in the US. And, you know, back then, you know, we're talking 1981, um, there weren't a heck of a lot of channels out there. So while I had the capacity for 61, there weren't 61 that existed. So I called up the studios and said, hey, you know, I see movie trailers only when I'm in the movies. Why don't you show them to me when I'm in my house? So make me want to go to the movies. And uh, they said, well, we really can't afford it and whatever. I said, great, send me the movie trailers. I'll put them on a channel and then we'll, uh, you know, you'll invite me to all those parties and premieres. Uh, and they were more than happy to do that. And what we did, um, kind of audience surveys, what's your favorite channel? They go, I love MTV, I love ESPN, I love that trailer channel. And when the company that I worked for moved back to Canada, I said, you know, I didn't go from New York to LA to go to Canada. Um, so I, I kept thinking about that saying, you know, I get the best two minutes of a $50 million movie for free. 
And in a lot of ways, it's just like MTV, you know, where a host would turn to a green screen and say, and Madonna has a new video. I said, well, why can't I, you know, just have someone turn to the green screen and gay and Schwarzenegger has a new TV show or a movie. And um, so then Alan and I just kept kicking that around. You know, we're going to entertainment tonight, 24 hours a day, MTV of the movies. And we wrote a business plan and we thought it was logical. Everybody we met with said, this is a great idea, but you know, you're not Time Warner or you're not TCI and you don't wake up in the morning and start TV networks. It's not the way the business works. And Alan and I just weren't smart enough to listen to them. So we just kept going. And at that time, the, the going rate to get a TV network going was somewhere between oh, 60 and $100 million. And um, finally, after three and a half years, and we were, we were almost ready to give up, um, we, we met an investment banker on Wall Street, and he said, I love this and I want to fund it. And we said, yay, when can we get to 60 million? And he said, well, I'm only allowed to sign for two and a half. Um, you know, we go, well, what are we going to do with two and a half? And then we thought about it and said, you know what? We'll, we'll figure this out. So we took the two and a half million, and um, I called a friend in the uh, University of Texas in Austin, uh, and asked him if he had kids in the radio TV program that uh, needed intern jobs. So he literally sent us 31 interns and we started the company with 11 employees and 31 interns. That is cool. Okay, so to my original point though, E! Entertainment, the original channel, was repurposing movie trailers. Uh, this is a theme in your life. Where did, can you identify a point back early at some, I mean, I know you started out as you said with the splicer, cable split, cable split yeah. splicer, whatever, but can you, at some point in your life, was there something that clicked, that connected the dot for you of taking one thing and finding a, a place for it? Because that is, I see that theme obviously through everything and you just named another one. Um, well, you know, it really didn't start till I got to Valley Cable. And, you know, it was just at the time that um, cable TV was really beginning to blow up and expand and stuff. And, and I, I marveled at MTV, you know, which was this, when it started, it was just this incredible phenomenon. And I said, that business model is amazing. They're getting the best musicians in the world to do music for them. And they're, they're getting that, you know, that, that two and three million dollar music video for free. And they're standing a host in front of a green screen and, you know, paying the host, you know, a thousand bucks a week to do it. I said, you know, I, I love that model. And, and, you know, just at that time, you know, you had the, the cable channel explosion. And um, the, the, the phrase that I kept hearing bandied around was cable TV is like an electronic newspaper. And Alan and I would thought about it, go, you know what? CNN is the headline, ESPN is the sports, the Home Shopping Network is the, is the ads. We said, but the thing that's missing from that picture is the second most read section of any newspaper, and that's the entertainment pages. So we, that's what we set out to be the entertainment pages of the cable newspaper. Um, you know, because we knew people would love it. And, and we actually thought more of it because it was international. People's love of Hollywood and stars and gossip and stuff 
was not just restricted to U.S. the way a lot of cable networks were restricted to U.S., but we figured we had something international, and we we knew that we could do it economically because we were going to get you know clips from movies for free, and then you know after we got started, I would go to the studios and say, listen, you know, why don't you send the video crew on the set while you're making the movie, and I'll promote it six months before it comes out instead of a week before it comes out. And they were thrilled to do it. So we were getting all this incredible video content literally for free. Um, and, you know, that, that gave us the basis for being able to start small. And then once we established, um, you know, it just it was one of those overnight successes that took three and a half years to, to cultivate itself. Um, but we, you know, we started getting advertising money and then we said, okay, now we have a little bit of money. We could get a little more creative with the programming. So we started with things like Talk Soup and Howard Stern and The Hollywood True Story. And, uh, you know, so we just built on it. And basically, it was built, in, you know, on internal cash flow. Y'all exited, right, and, and had that liquidity event. Walk us through, because there are a lot of deal makers that watch this show, listen to this show, who are looking to their first exit. Yeah. So that's on their, that's, that's the goal for them. As y'all built towards that, and I know you said something very um, humbly, and you said that you, know, you were too dumb to know better than to keep going or whatever. Um, and as entrepreneurs, I know we're bullheaded a lot of times and we just keep pushing, but, and, and sometimes we prove other people wrong. But when you got close to that and as you were coming up on that exit, walk us through the the process as y'all were were putting the deal together and ultimately making making the exit and having the liquidity. Uh, you know, once we got on the air, you know, the all the the cable industry, the big cable companies, the Time Inc. and then which became Time Warner and TCI and United Cable and you know a lot of those companies have all merged together and they don't they don't, they don't exist anymore. But um, they came to us and said, hey, you know. Now that we really can understand what you're doing, uh, we'd like to invest in you. So we took in seven of the biggest cable operators as, as investors in the company. And um, we grew astronomically. The first year we were in 14 other countries other than the U.S. <clears throat> we were the fastest growing cable system in the U.S. And it just, you know, it, it got so big so fast that, you know, for me personally, um, who's a creative person, you know, at the end of the day, um, found myself spending more time reading financial statements and sitting in boardrooms and fighting over next year's budgets and ad sales projections and stuff. So, you know, after a while, it just stopped, you know, you know, in year nine or something, it just got old for me. Um, so I just decided, you know, I, I didn't want to participate in the day to day. And so I, I just went on the board and I hired a C, CEO to kind of run the day to day. And, um, and so, and then we just, we just sat there, but the one thing we did, which was really smart, um, was when we, we negotiated those deals, um, we negotiated dilution protection, uh, for Alan and I. So even though HBO and Time Warner kept saying, oh, we could run the day-to-day -day so much more efficiently than Larry ever did, you know, they spent another $75 million over budget. 
building it. Now and I just sat and left. You know, we go, this is great. Keep pouring that money into the company. And they did. So uh, it was, you know, we, we were fortunate and stuff. And, you know, at that time, the cable companies knew that the growth was inevitable. So they really didn't care about throwing an extra $75 million into operating. Talk a little bit about what's going on with Maton now. Um, that I know you've got that. You also have Fanvestor, which we're going to talk about. But I want to talk a little bit about Mayton in just a moment. Before we do, if you're listening or watching this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can go to thedealflowshow.com and get access to our archives as well as uh, subscribe or follow us for future episodes as well. That's thedealflowshow.com. All right, Larry, so talk a little bit about what you're doing today with Mayton and the interest it could, you can talk about U.S., globally. Um, I read a lot about where you've, again, taken shows overseas, repurposed content. It's very interesting. You know, while I was still at E, um, a lawyer friend of mine in town asked me um, if I would go over to Russia with some clients of his that were basically in merchant banking and somebody proposed an entertainment deal to them and uh, the lawyer wasn't sure how real it was. So he asked me, could you go there and tell me what you think? And yeah, I just thought it was fascinating to go to Russia, you know, and uh, so I did. And of course, the deal that they were looking at was not really a good deal. And, you know, so they ultimately passed on that. But um, I, I really liked the place and I liked the people and I could tell the changes were coming. And um, so I had met the mayor of St. Petersburg uh, and, you know, he asked me if I would help him start a charity to raise money for the children's hospital and the children's orphanage there and uh, via doing a music festival. And, you know, my first reaction was, well, you know, I would love to help you, but I don't know the music business. And he goes, well, you got to know more than I do. And I went, uh, all right, I'll give you that one. And uh, so I set out to, to start what's called the White Nights Festival, uh, which is now in its 30th year um, now. And uh, it was a charity. But to get, um, uh, to get people to play, um, I would kind of promise them, you know, unusual venues, unusual experiences and stuff like that. And then I'd go to the mayor and say, listen, I had to promise David Bowie he could dance on the graves of the czars. Uh, and the mayor would go, yeah, 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 just go see Vladimir. And, you know, turns out Vladimir, the vice mayor's last name was Putin. Um, so, you know, as, as his fortunes rose, um, he ended up in the Kremlin and he, he made a friend of mine, um, the Minister of Communications, and they realized that they had to, um, they had to kind of rethink media regulation there so that if they're going to have a consumer economy you got to bring in goods that people actually want to buy um so that means you're going to bring in western goods western marketers and they're going to be used to certain things existing like advertising on tv is 30 seconds not whatever you feel like today or if you know the right guy in the communist party you could have tea instead of putting the ads on and yeah it was kind of willy-nilly you know people did whatever they wanted um, but so I had helped them do that. And then um, about 11 years ago, the Chinese government kind of realized they, they also had to do media reform if they're going to build this consumer economy. You know, because they wanted Coke and Pepsi and, you know, all the usual P&G and 
the usual cast of characters in, and they had to make that media environment look, you know, a little bit more like what they were used to. And so they liked the Russian model. Um, the Russians said, oh, no, 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 we can help you, but there's a guy in L.A. who did it, you know, for us. Go see him. And so I, I got invited in by the government, a government agency, to go to China. And again, for me, it was like, wow, this is a great adventure. Um, and uh, so I went there and I did that. And they allowed us to start a, um, uh, an experimental media company there. And uh, so we're, we're still there. And we do, uh, well, you know, the pandemic has caused a whole bunch of problems. But we do TV shows. We do internet content. We do feature films. Uh, we actually have a consulting group in uh, Beijing that helps helps Western companies come into the market and build their brand on really in a very ground level understanding of the way China works, uh, which is, you know, you may need accountants and you may need lawyers, but then again, you need practical entrepreneurs who know how to maneuver. Um, so we do that for, for some Western companies. Uh, we, um, you know, have done, we've had major shows on TV there and, you know, and there is a little different. So besides bringing stuff there, like uh, buying formats of American shows and redoing those in, in Mandarin language. So you take a show like Gossip Girl. So, you know, instead of Spoiled Rich Girls in New York, it's Spoiled Rich Girls in Shanghai. You already had the basis for, you know, a hit show there. And, you know, it, the English version proved very popular. So we said, why not the Chinese version? Um, but then we started creating original stuff specifically for the market. We had uh, eight years, a show called Hello Hollywood, uh, which was what does the Chinese audience want to know about what goes on in Hollywood, uh, which is very different than the U.S. audience. And, um, you know, then we, we're doing some, a lot of travel shows. Chinese, China's the largest uh, group of outbound tourists in the world these days. Well, it wasn't until the pandemic anyway. Um, so, you know, a lot of countries are interested in attracting the Chinese to come. So we do some shows that, you know, we just were finished shooting the Balkans and stuff like that, and, you know, where they want to bring Chinese tourists there or did want to bring them before the pandemic. And uh, so we just do, you know, lots of lots of stuff there. I mean, it's really varied. And, uh, and I, I spend, you know, about half my time on Mayton related business. If you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives as well as subscribe and follow us to get access to future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com. Larry, you, uh, you're currently serving as the COO of FanVestor, which we want to hear all about, but you mentioned an artist before, one of my personal favorites, David Bowie. I had recently saw an interview you did. What influence did the David Bowie brand or how he branded himself has to do with also FanVestor. Could you share that with us, please? I got involved with FanVestor, which is kind of, a, it's an online platform where fans of any artist, whether they be accredited or non-accredited investors, could actually you know, invest in securities or bonds, some kind of financial instrument that relates to their favorite artists, uh, could be within the field that the artist is, could be something the artist is passionate about, it doesn't, so if it's a musician, it doesn't necessarily have to be music. 
uh, they may want to start a fashion line and stuff and want to invest money. But the Bowie thing I thought was very interesting uh, and was a great opportunity because when I really researched that, you know, David at some point realized that every dollar that came in on his, related to his music, the record company was getting 87 cents and he was getting 13. Um, so his people, his management people were very smart. They created a financial instrument called Bowie Bonds. And what they did was they, from David's fans, they raised the money um, and they bought back the library from the record company. And they basically flipped the equation. So now every dollar that came in went to David, you know, David's company, of which his fans were investors. So they benefited greatly also. Um, and I started to think about that and I said, you know, especially now during the pandemic, where, you know, uh, what was a reasonably rigid industry, you know, when you go to people in the music business, they go, oh, that's not the way we do it. Um, you know, that was six months ago. Um, now, when I come in and say, I got a new idea how you can make some, you know, get some revenue, they are listening. That is, it, it has shuffled everything. So give us the, the, maybe a couple of project examples or something that would kind of give our audience an insight into the platform and how it works. Sure. Um, so FanVest, you know, you, you have a lot of, you know, platforms like Kickstarter and those things, which basically they're not security or securitized things you you sign up and get a product earlier, the product at a discount and stuff. Fandresser kind of runs the gamut. So number one, it's it it has SEC approvals for certain kinds of investment levels like reg CF levels or reg A's and stuff like that. So you can raise a reasonable amount of money from 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 the public. And um, so you could go either to the, the web app or the mobile app, uh, you know, sign up and you become a fan, fan best a member. So you could invest in certain projects. And again, it could be uh, a music star's next album, you know, where they don't want to do it through the record company. It could be their next tour where they don't want to sign up with Live Nation and, you know, do that kind of thing. Or it could be, um, as simple as somebody wanting to start something a little bit outside of their core business. Uh, like uh, I'm working now with a major league baseball player, well, Hall of Famer, um, who wants to start a fragrance line. Um, he's got a huge social media following. Fans love him. And, uh, you know, rather than go the traditional VC route, they're able to raise money, you know, on a much more economic basis, uh, you know, through their fan base, and the fans get to own it. Um, you know, in the sports world, I think the, the interesting model is the Green Bay Packers. Um, people don't realize that the Packers are actually owned by their fans. Um, they issued a public stock, and the fans own it, and uh, they, um, you know, I don't think they've had an empty seat in 50 years. And the fans are interesting because they're not necessarily looking – for a huge ROIs, you know, the way you may look at, you know, when you invest in Pepsi or Coke or something. But, um, you know, they like having that certificate on the wall and nobody likes to lose money, but they're not looking, you know, for crazy returns on it and stuff there. They, they love having that closeness with their, uh, 
with, with their team. And, you know, the team does special days for the shareholders and stuff like that. And the deal works great. So we say, you know, there are, there are soccer teams out there that, you know, want to raise a bunch of sell off a piece to raise money to go buy a new star. And so just so many opportunities there. And that's kind of what got me all jazzed about FanVestor. Just so that I'm clear on it, though, are they are they are they investing in FanVestor or are they investing in the individual celebrity or sports figure? No, FanVestor is just a, a, a digital platform which uh, facilitates investments, but the investments themselves go into the individual projects. FanVestor takes a fee, you know, certainly much less than you know what a VC or anybody like that will take. Um, so it could be for investments like that. It could be for um, raising money for charity. Um, we just did a thing with the Jonas Brothers where they wanted to raise money from their fans uh, for COVID relief efforts. Um, Fanvestor is great at that, you know, so we, uh, we, we put that up there and we raised money for it. And, you know, we're still going and, um, you know, so that thing we did some with Ryan Seacrest. We're doing something with Paul Oakenfield now. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of, while there are companies that do little pieces of what FanVestor does, FanVestor is really the first one that brings it all together. So we could do a securities raise that has uh, uh, experiences involved, that has a sweepstake or a contest or anything like that, all kind of in one package. What regulation is that raising under then? We, we could do Reg CF, um, you know, for smaller raises up to a million seventy thousand. Uh, we could do Reg A's, we could do Reg D's, we could do um, Reg S. Okay, very interesting. Let's talk about. You've had some obviously some great successes. I haven't met a single person over the years of building businesses myself that's ever had any success that also hasn't had what I call learning experiences. So others call them setbacks, failures, challenges, whatever they might be. I want to talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives as well as follow and subscribe to get access to future episodes by going to thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. Dot com. So Larry Namer here, obviously founder of E Entertainment Group, as well as now involved with Fanvestor, COO of that, and Mayton Entertainment Group. So let's talk a little bit about the other side of success, and that is those times when everything doesn't go exactly right. Walk us through. It's part mindset. It's part strategy. It's part having a process. How has it worked for you over the years when you hit the wall? How do you approach that? How do you get around it? How do you move forward? Well, you know, I, you know, we go back to, uh, you know, and I got to say that I wake up every morning with 10 new ideas. Um, nine of them are usually, by the end of the day, I realize how stupid they were. Um, but I'm smart, <laughs> enough, I'm smart enough to throw them away and not focus on bad ideas just because they were mine. But, you know, going back... Um, uh, we were you know, managing partners in an LLC and we owned one of the greatest domain names in the world called television.com. Um, and somebody came along and asked us, uh, offered us $7 million for the domain name. And we just said, no, 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 no. We're not selling out cheap. We're going to launch this ourselves. And it'll be, a you know, if, if broadcast.com was a billion, this is two. Um, so we launched it. Um, 
And it was a huge success from the audience point of view. We were one of the first people to really do streaming video and stuff like that. Although, you know, streaming video wasn't as robust as it is today. Um, and without any marketing money, we were up to a million users a month. And this is going back to the late 90s, early 2000. And then the, um, uh, the internet bust came. And you had all these websites that, you know, everybody was selling video ads at $25 a thousand. And for that, our economics were great. But then when everybody started dumping their inventory into the marketplace, the ad cost went down to 25 cents a thousand. Well, we couldn't afford to feed someone, in, you know, a video at, at those kind of rates. So the more people that use the service and the bigger we grew, the more we would lose. And, you know, we begged Google, uh, Google to delist us. Please don't tell anybody we exist. We don't want anybody coming here anymore. And, you know, of course they wouldn't do that. And it was just one of those things that no matter what we did, um, this thing kept growing. And the more it kept growing, the more money we would lose uh, till eventually we just shut it down and realized that, you know, sometimes the, the world takes over and doesn't make a difference how smart you think you are. So that's kind of been, you know, one of, for me, it was a great lesson because I really learned, you know, that sometimes you got to put your ego aside and go, you know what, it seemed like a good idea back then, but, and to just constantly reassess the things you're doing and, you know, to have the nerve to go, you know what, thought it was good, wasn't next, you know, and instead of trying to focus on saving it, get rid of it quick and focus on the things that actually can make money. What's your pregame? What's your, how do you, how do you get yourself ready for a deal? And also with that, what are some of the deal breakers that you've come across and what are some of the red flags? So kind of a two part question, how do you prepare? And then what, what do you do when you see those red flags? Well, I mean, you know, lots of research. Um, I, I read late into the night. So literally before I go into a meeting with anybody, I research the heck out of it and stuff like that. And I try and know as much about their business as they might know. Uh, not possible of course, but, um, I want to make sure I have a good understanding of what all the underlying, you know, dynamics are in, in that deal. Um, and, you know, uh, so, so having that really coming up with what do you think a fair deal is going to be? Because I'm a great believer that if both sides don't come out with something good, the deal may get done, but it's going to die on the vine. Um, eventually the other person will realize it's a one-sided deal and they're going to find a way to, to, to get to get out of it. Um, so, you know, coming up with something that I think will work for, for both sides, but the, uh, the deal breakers typically, you know, when, when somebody proposes something to me that I recognize as one-sided, uh, a lot of people want to, they, they want to build their business based on someone else's reputation and successes. So they just want to be near you so they can announce. And now I'm in business with Larry Neymar, the founder of E and, you know, stuff like that. And then, you know, a month later, there's really nothing there, but they got their press announcement out. So, you know, I, I look for that and do it. Yeah, the other thing that turns me off is when people, uh, you know, right off the bat ask for exclusive, they go, okay, we'll do that deal, but we want to be your exclusive, whatever. Um, 
you know, to me, exclusivity is something you need to earn. You don't get it at the beginning of a deal. What excites you now? What keeps you going? Like, are there, is it goals you haven't achieved or is it projects that you go, man, this is just a cool idea and I want to be a part of it. What is it that gets you up in the morning and keeps you excited? It's going through those 10 that he thought about, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I love doing new stuff. I love things that actually give me the opportunity to learn and grow. Um, For me, you know, I got involved in FanVest as an advisor. because uh, I thought it was fascinating, and it took, you know, kind of my understanding of the media and entertainment business. And then it was really taking me into the world of finance, um, you know, on a much deeper level than I've ever had to be involved. And um, so, you know, that was it. It was, it was learning. Uh, and uh, so couple that with things that I think are exciting. I think there are new opportunities. I, I always look for kind of you know, the silver lining in every cloud, um, even with the pandemic, um, you know, it's, it's horrible and, you know, it continues to be horrible, but I think there are some incredible business opportunities that arise from, from this that maybe weren't there before. Um, like I said, when you, when I deal with people, particularly in music or film or whatever, um, I could propose something new to them six months ago and they go, ah, Larry, that's not the way we do it. Uh, now everybody's going, help us out. We need a new way. We need a new path. So those things are fun for me. That's what I like doing. I like doing a lot of stuff that involves, um, I've been doing diversity way before diversity became a cool thing. I mean, my whole history in the cable business is about, you know, letting smaller voices, you know, participate in media and democratizing media in many ways. And, uh, yeah, so those are the those are the things. I, I hate I tried golf, I hated it. Um and I said, you know, if I don't keep finding new things to do, you know, I, I might be forced to play this game and I just don't want to do that. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Are there any um, types of people, obviously Harbor City and the Deal Flow Show team, we've built a network ourselves prior to the show, but through this show, now we're approaching 30 episodes for season one that's launching in this fourth quarter of this year. So are there any kind of people that you would like to connect with or what is it that is the, the things that are on your horizon? What kind of people or deals would you like to be approached with? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm pretty focused on fanvestor related business these days. And, um, you know, anybody who has um, reasonable size social media presence, because fanvestor is really based on, you know, people who are looking to raise money having a very active social media presence and stuff. So whether it's a CF, a small raise, you know, of a million dollars or, you know, a reggae, uh, if the fan base is there or access to a fan base is there, um, those are people that would be real interesting for me to be meeting. Incidentally, do y'all cross promote? So in other words, do you take other, other celebrities that have raised or done projects on FanVestor and cross promote your, your new projects? Yeah, well, we do that, and as a matter of fact, we we just started. And again, I'm I'm only a month in, so you know, uh, you know, to an active role from when I was just an advisor. Uh, we're also doing another thing of taking uh, more or less startup companies or, or early stage companies 
that are looking for brand ambassadors. On the other hand, we've got, you know, particularly a lot of sports celebrities and stuff that are not working the way they used to that, and, and we're becoming a marriage broker in that sense. And again, that stuff is fun, figuring out who really makes sense to, to represent certain types of businesses. I love that. We're going to be in touch with you about that when we get offline uh, because we've got some, in fact, there was one other guest, several people, but one other guest that we had on the show that has uh, an audience or a, a, a portfolio of people that are a perfect match for this. I'm very excited about the model. I, we've talked a lot about Reg A, a little bit about CF, but a lot about Reg A on this show yeah. and in fact intend to do a special roundtable talking about reggae, and I think you offer a really unique perspective on that. I'd like to invite you to potentially come back for that roundtable and be a part of that as we bring several people in to talk about the reggae. I think that's one of the most exciting opportunities. It's certainly uh, democratized capital raising in a way and, and taking a lot of the power away from the good old boys network. So it's going to be really interesting to see where that goes over the next few years. Yeah, that's, you know, the, the one of the fun things about FanVestor is it really doesn't see color or religion or gender or anything like that. It's if you've got fans, those are make a difference who you are, or what they are and stuff. Um, it's an online platform that pulls it all together. Have you primarily worked with, uh, let's say, name people or are you all now working with some of the social media influencers? They, they didn't have a name outside of social media, but they blew up on YouTube or TikTok or something of that nature. Yeah, I, I, both. I mean, it really comes down to how much of a social media influence people have. So they could be, you know, uh, uh, so it could be a rock kind of celebrity on one hand, or it could just be, you know, somebody who's a, an internet only employee. As long as they've got a reasonable size base, and they're willing to be active in promoting the project and the fundraising, that that matches up well to what FanVestic can do best. All right. Other than the fact that you don't like golf, is there anything, <laughs> is there anything that our audience or that the people listening to this wouldn't know about Larry? Is there something that you could share? I'm an avid, avid chef. I read a cookbook a month. I practice in the kitchen. It's kind of my um, psychological release. Whenever I have a difficult day, I go in the kitchen, I cook, and I kind of forget about everything. So rather than go to a psychiatrist, I go to the kitchen. Very interesting. Where's, wait, hang on. Where's our invites, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to invite myself because I want to work on it. We're working on a show where I'm going to be having breakfast with interesting people. And uh, if you're game for it, we'll make it a date and you can cook breakfast and then we'll talk about some other things, business and success. It works for me. I love cooking for other people. Wonderful. Awesome. Sounds That's good, wonderful. Larry. Um, what is the best way for someone to get a hold of you or to reach out? Is it through a website, an email? What would be the best way that, for you? LJN at LJNmedia.com, you know, which is my kind of holding company. Uh, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on all those, you know. I do, I do Facebook myself. Um, but, you know, the Twitters and the other stuff that somebody from the office does, to be quite honest. Absolutely. Fantastic. Larry, I appreciate you being on the show. Really we're been gonna, a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, we're going to be back in touch. I know we have some connections that, gonna, that are going to make sense. So it was great to have you on and share your special perspective on what we're doing at the deal table. 
Um, once again, if you're listening or watching this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our episodes, future and past, by going to thedealflowshow.com. On behalf of myself, Paul Nicolini, my host here at The Deal Flow Show, I'm J.P. Maroney, and we'll see you again on another episode very, very soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks Bye-bye. again, Larry. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.